All right, well, good morning, everybody. Um, if we haven't met, my name is Mandy. I'm on staff here at Reality Church Boston. I also am carrying many things right now. Um, and I have the privilege of continuing our sermon series this morning from the book of Isaiah, which, as Maggie just said, uh, talks about God's surprising plan for renewal. And I've been thinking about this kind of topic and this question since we named our sermon series Surprise, with an exclamation point, obviously. Um, but my question is, do we think of God as surprising? And how does it make you feel to think that God might be a surprising God? Does it make you excited, anxious, uncomfortable? I mean, maybe it depends, right? What kind of surprise are we talking about here? Like, are there treats involved? Or is it like one of those crossroad moments in life that causes you to develop character through suffering? Because I'm not so sure that I want to sign up for the latter. But um, depending on how well I think my life is going, the idea that God is surprising might actually feel like a threat to my well-being, if I'm being honest. Especially if I'm surrounded by unpredictability or craving answers and clarity, I might become resistant to the idea that God could suddenly and completely change things. But as I've been spending time in the past weeks on the book of Isaiah, I'm noticing a shift in my perspective. Because most of God's responses in this book are surprising. But it's his surprising response, I'm realizing, that takes an otherwise bleak and desperate situation and really saturates it with this ray of hope. And so I'm excited today to share with you some of the surprising discoveries that we think can be found in the chapters Isaiah 43 and 44. But before we dive in, let me just open with a word of prayer. Oh, Lord God, um, Lord, we just ask that this morning that we would become so aware of your presence here with us, Lord. We thank you for the gifts that are to be found in your word. We thank you for what it teaches you, teaches us about yourself, about who you are, about your character, about your goodness, about your faithfulness. Lord, we also thank you that your word asks hard questions and confronts difficult and dark realities that exist in your world, Lord. We thank you that your word desires to meet us where we are here and now, whatever we're carrying, whatever we've been wrestling with, whatever questions may, be, may have been on our mind, wherever we find ourselves in this moment in time, we thank you that you have something to say to us. And Lord, we thank you that we get to journey with you. So I just pray that we would be open this morning to hearing more about God, just what it looks like to journey with you through big questions, what it looks like to journey with you through pain, what it looks like to journey with you when maybe there's a part of us that's having difficulty seeing you and, and hearing from you and trusting you or even believing that you're there. So Lord, we pray that this morning that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to receive what it is that you want to speak. Lord, and I just pray that the words that I speak today would be um, just a reflection of the things that you've worked in my life and would be full of the truth that you want to speak to us today. So we pray all of those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So as, uh, as we mentioned today, we are looking at two passages. I felt very ambitious somehow. But part of the reason that I want to talk about both is that I think to understand the message of Isaiah, we need to talk about these two key topics that we see in these passages. So the first one is idolatry, which we see in the passage from 44. 
And we need to talk about renewal, which is the focus in chapter 43. So to unpack these topics and to show how they're connected, I'm going to do something a little funny and talk about them in reverse. So we'll start in 44, and then we'll backtrack to, where, to the passage in first, uh, verse 43, in chapter 43. So, okay, in one of my study Bibles, the heading on chapter 44 reads, The Folly of Idolatry. And idolatry is a central theme in the book of Isaiah. And as Josh explained last week, at this point in history, the ancient Israelites had spent 40 years in exile, in captivity in the kingdom of Babylon. And even though God had appeared in power and signs and faithfully cared for his people throughout the past, they had begun to stray and to pursue foreign gods. And most of the surrounding nations, like Babylon, were polytheistic. They believed that there was a simple formula to follow if you wanted blessings from one of their many gods. All you had to do was to make, to carve a statue, an idol, out of wood or stone, and the god would inhabit that idol so that you could communicate with them. So if you prayed to the idol, the god would hear. If you made sacrifices to the idol, the god would receive them. And now ancient Israel was just surrounded by these beliefs, and even though God had made it clear that he was the one true God, and that these idols were a work of fiction, the Israelites were still tempted to turn to these foreign idols when they wanted something, or perhaps when they felt that God was too slow to answer their prayers. So this is the context of Isaiah 44. God is speaking to a people who have essentially rejected him. They have forgotten the many times that God had provided for them, and they have put their trust in the seemingly simple and reliable formula of idolatry. So through the prophet Isaiah, God seeks to expose the foolishness and the fruitlessness of what the people are doing. And this passage that we're reading in 44 kind of reads like a satire. And actually, when we read it in my community group this week, the reaction was kind of funny because if you start in verse 13, things seem to start out pretty pleasantly. It sounds like a story about this carpenter who kind of sketches a picture of what he wants to make, and then he finds wood from a nearby tree and begins to carve it. That's nice. I wonder what he's making. And then he uses the wood to kindle a fire and to bake some bread, but he has leftover wood, so he thinks to himself, what will I do with this? I know. I will carve a God for myself so I can pray to it for blessing and deliverance. Is it just me or did that story take a wildly sharp left turn? <laughs> Making a fire for warmth, I get. It's November in Boston. Making food, I get. I love a little afternoon snack. But never have I ever carved a block of wood into an idol and bowed before it and worshipped it. It sounds kind of ridiculous, and that is the point of this passage. The description is just dripping with irony, as if to say, don't you see what you are doing? You took a tree that was fed by the rain, that was grown by the grace of the actual creator God, and the same tree that you used as firewood, you also used to design a god for yourself? It's meant to strike us as absurd. Now, as I've studied the Bible over the years, there are these, like, certain themes that tend to capture my attention more than others that I kind of become, like, fixated on and fascinated by. And one of them is idolatry. It sounds a little suspect, maybe, to say that I'm fascinated by idolatry, but what I mean is that I find myself approaching the topic almost like it's a Rubik's Cube. Like, I keep turning it over and over in my mind and, like, looking at it from different angles, trying to figure out what it is, like, it's a problem to solve. Like, what is idolatry. I know the technical definition, but I don't get it, because people seem like really into idols. But why? 
What was the big allure? And also, what does it have to do with us today? So I think it would be easy for us to just stand in the place of judgment over these idol makers. It would be easy to look down on these silly ancient people with their silly ancient ways and not ask ourselves if we might have anything in common with them. But do we? And that's the question that I was preoccupied with until I realized where I was getting tripped up. I had been asking myself, how can I understand why the Israelites worshiped idols when I can't imagine doing that myself? When I can't imagine taking like, materials that already exist in the world, reshaping them according to my liking, and then acting like this thing I created has the ability to direct and even improve my life. How can I figure out what these texts might have to say to me, to us, when I've never done that? And then it dawned on me that I have done that. My attempt to create my own religion is actually a major part of my testimony. That is a description of my life before I began following Jesus. So many of you who know me have heard, you tell, have heard me tell my story that I, I grew up in a non-religious family. The first time I really read the Bible was in a philosophy class in my sophomore year of college. I wasn't raised with a specific belief system. But somehow I still developed into a very philosophical teenager, and so I tried to construct one for myself. I would learn about like different worldviews and take away the pieces that I liked. And maybe at that time, I liked the idea of like karma and reincarnation in Eastern religions, so I would opt into that. But I didn't really like how emotionless it felt, like Buddhism was a little too Zen for me, so I tried to find some like French philosopher who spoke to my desire to live with passion and depth of feeling but I wouldn't like any, everything that they said either. Maybe I didn't like the idea that people were inherently flawed or broken. So I'd look for a more optimistic worldview that said everyone was good at the core, which was nice because it exempted me from judging anyone. So I was basically a tourist of others' ideologies, kind of collecting souvenirs along the way and then trying to combine them all into one coherent whole, hoping that it could improve my life somehow. And when it didn't, I would think, okay, well, maybe there's a piece missing, or maybe I picked up a wrong piece, and if I switch it out for something else, then that will work. I was operating in a way that may be familiar if you've read the Bible. I was building idols. I had crafted something that I thought would make my life work the way I wanted it to. And if it didn't, I would discard it. I would go to a neighboring religion, an ideology that I hadn't tried yet, and see what they had to offer. I was an idolater, and like many idolaters, I wasn't a very loyal one because I was mostly interested in anything that might help me engineer my reality to make it more comfortable, to meet my needs and desires. What I was not interested in, if I was being honest with myself, was the truth. And this is the problem. It's so easy to construct a belief system, even unconsciously, that's made up only of things we like. Things that instinctively make sense to us and serve our agenda, and not anything that challenges us or could cause us discomfort. And we can fall into this trap even as Christians. Maybe we don't like the idea of a God who judges. So we sweep the verses that talk about judgment under the rug and focus only on his mercy. Or we don't like the idea of a God who is slow to anger, so we downplay his patience and we turn up the volume on his passion for justice. Or we are frustrated with the lack of righteousness in this world. So God's tendency to forgive sins rubs us the wrong way. 
So we put limits on who is eligible for God's forgiveness. Maybe create like a rewards point system so we can be sure that everyone is playing fair. What we end up with when we pick and choose the ideas we prefer is not truth. What we end up with is a mirror. The belief system we've constructed is just a reflection of ourselves. And by living according to these beliefs, we are trying to force reality to conform to our image, to our wishes. And that's what I had done. I had been trying to shape reality to make it more palatable and more amenable to my wants. And to the surprise of no one, it wasn't working out very well. <laughs> a major turning point in my journey was when life became hard enough and dark enough and heavy enough that I began to let go of my illusions and my preferences. And I just wanted to know what was true. And it turned out that truth wasn't just a religious system or a collection of like tidbits of wisdom or like a set of ancient scrolls telling us what to do and what not to do. Truth is a person. True and lasting reality isn't just what we see in front of us now or what we're able to comprehend now with our limited understanding. Reality is shaped by God, by who he is and by what he is doing in our world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So when we turn to idols, we are turning away from the source of truth and embracing lies. Isaiah 44 says, all who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads them. They cannot save themselves or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? And this is the condition of the Israelites when we meet them, and God is calling them to face the truth. The truth is that there's only one God, and they've betrayed him. The truth is that they chose idolatry and sin because it felt easier, more comfortable, more promising in its offer to get them what they wanted. The truth is that God gave them what they wanted and let them go their own way, but it turns out they didn't like the consequences. When a stronger power overtook them and separated them from everything they knew, they grew bitter against God. But the truth is, they did it to themselves. Now, if the story ended here, it would be a very sad story. Fortunately for us, God seems to like a surprise ending. So hear what God has to say next to these rebellious people. He says, I have made you. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So in spite of their rebellion, in spite of their idolatry, the enduring truth that stands above all this is that God is committed to his people. And God is committed to his plan of renewal. And this brings us right back to chapter 43, where God is talking to the same people who have doubted him and griped against him. And he says this, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So God proclaims that he is doing a new thing. On the surface level, this means bringing the exiles home, which is a long-awaited answer to prayer. But even more than that, this is a forward-looking promise that points to God's heart for his people. Because God's whole agenda is the new and the unexpected. His forgiveness of sin, unexpected. 
his welcoming in former rebels and idolaters as his children, unexpected. His promise to bring them into a new season of abundance and thriving, water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland, unexpected. If we look at Israel's past unfaithfulness and their, their turning away from God, none of this makes sense. Why would God make such extravagant promises to them? See, the insidious thing about idolatry is that it, condition, it conditions us to operate in transactional relationships. You figure out what your idol wants, you give it to them, and then you get what you want. But this is not how God operates. God even points out here in verse 23 that Israel did not bring him offerings or honor him with their sacrifices. They had stopped even calling on him. God's forgiveness was not based on them figuring out the right formula to get him what he wanted so they would get what they needed. God offers them forgiveness for his own sake because he is merciful, because he is committed to his plan of renewal. And part of God's proclamation of renewal is an invitation to forget the former things. Now, what exactly does that mean? Are the Israelites supposed to, like, literally forget about the struggles and the suffering they experienced? Is this like an eternal sunshine of the spotless mind scenario where they try to erase it all from their memories? How would it even be possible to forget the pain of exile, even if they wanted to? Another way to phrase this verse would be to say, do not call to mind the former things. And I think the invitation here is to let go of the iron grip that the past can sometimes have on us so that it no longer shapes the way we see our present or our future. It's a call to let the former things fall away like broken shackles so we are free to embrace the new. Now, if our past is painful, even if that pain is self-inflicted, it can be hard not to let that control how we live. We become kind of tense, on guard, trying to prevent that pain from happening again. And it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy where we're always expecting the past to repeat itself so we never create space for the possibility of something new and unexpected. I was talking to a, f a few friends this week um, <clears throat> about the ideal uh, idea of renewal. And one shared about a season of deep pain they'd experienced, but how God had brought about so much healing in their life since then that even if they tried to return to that pain, how that season felt, they couldn't. They remembered everything that happened clearly, but it's as if their heart had forgotten the past and they were able to live lightly without the burden attached to those memories. And I think that's the kind of renewal God is calling us to, where the power of the former things diminishes and the greater power of the new thing God is doing begins to shape our reality. So all this thinking about renewal got me thinking about how that has showed up in my own life. And so I was thinking back to when I first began following Jesus and kind of like playing that out in my mind again, the moments where I experienced conviction of sin, where I began to see my character and my desires and my priorities change. And I was like literally fishing, I think, for like an example of renewal. Um, I was like, that'd be really helpful to talk about today. But honestly, this week at least, as I thought about these things, a lot of them felt kind of distant and fuzzy to me. So I really began to wonder, when was the last time I really believed that God could bring about renewal? And the first thing that came to mind was when I moved to Boston. 
So I moved to the city 10 years ago, largely because of this captivating vision tied to the church plant that we did that, at that time, this vision and belief that renewal could happen in the city, that God desired it, and that he was already at work, and that he was inviting us, his church, to join him. And recently, I've found myself telling the story of the decade that I've spent in Boston, partly because of our church merger, because I've been kind of tasked with recounting where we've been as a church the past 10 years, and partly with some other ministry leaders I've recently met as we shared our stories with one another. As I've told my story, I've become more aware of how much pain I've been carrying. 10 years is a long time in a very transient place. A lot of relationships have come and gone. People I've cared about who have walked through intense pain. People I've cared about who have walked away from the Lord and his church. People I've cared about who stopped believing the best in me and turned away from our relationship. Burdens I carried that I didn't feel strong enough for. And there was a version of this story, my story, that I was telling that was marked by a lot of grief. A grief that I realized that I hadn't fully processed or healed from. And that is important work that I am still journeying through now, giving yourself space to sit with the Lord in painful things and slowly heal. But I also realized that that version of my story wasn't the whole story. Since I have this kind of unprocessed pain, I had been distracted from many other parts of my story where I saw God work miracles, where he answered prayers for healing, where he answered my prayers for community with friendships that have lasted almost a decade, where in my times of loneliness, I felt so close to God that it was like I could almost touch him and breathe him in where God gave me a courage to face hard things that I didn't know that I had, where I got to see people come to faith for the first time and experience the goodness of God in their lives. For the past few years alone, I, I'm realizing I have held a lot of pain and grief, but in some ways, this is the sweetest season I've experienced in this church because each week I look around and I see hope and commitment and a desire to seek God in people's faces and voices and the way that they tell their stories. And I have seen God reinvent his church and bring about a new thing in our midst more times than I can count. And I know that there's a part of this that where it's true that I will have to walk through what could be a long season of unpacking this grief. But I also hope for the day that even if I try to feel the pain of the past things, the years that have passed, I won't be able to. Because that's what God does. Our God is a healer. Even today, I am finding that as I kind of revisit these different parts of my story, I still believe in his renewal. And I believe that it's happening here and now. So this connects to what I see in this passage in Isaiah, where God is basically proclaiming to his people that there is hope on the other side of exile, that there is hope on the other side of darkness and the broken things. And idolatry happens when we stop believing in that, when we try to take matters into our own hands instead of looking to the many signs we have of God's goodness and faithfulness. 
And one thing that I've noticed, um, maybe you'll relate to this, is that when I pray and something good happens, I kind of mentally check that off as resolved. But emotionally, I actually quickly forget that God had anything to do with it. But when a prayer seemingly goes unanswered, or I continue to struggle with something for a long time, somehow God feels very much a part of the picture, and it's very clear to me that he is not answering me, and I feel neglected. I see that in the Israelites' response to God in Isaiah, and I get it. The irony is that I think sometimes we have an easier time attributing hard or disappointing things to God than good, and even miraculous things that he definitely had a hand in. So the challenge for us is to release the old, the hard, the broken into God's hands and to open our hands to receive the new. So if we want to believe that God's big plan for the world is renewal, how do we respond to this promise? How do we respond to what we see here? How can we begin to lean into it? So three things come to mind. We'll close on this. So the first thing is to turn from our old ways. The second thing is to look for the new thing that God is doing. And the third is to lean into the discomfort. So first, we have to turn away from our old ways, for the temptation to try to engineer an ideal reality for ourselves. The caveat, if we want to live into God's offer of renewal, is that we don't get to go our own way anymore. If we are really done with our idols, if we see how empty it is to forge our own wayward path, we have to accept that we can't manipulate God. We can't force him to do what we want. We can't push our agenda on him or try to get him to conform to our timelines. We have to let God be God and to trust in the integrity of his character and the evidence of his faithfulness to us. Another way of saying to turn away is to repent, to turn our backs on the broken ways of operating, of the transactional approach to faith, of self-reliance, of a desire for control. And secondly, to turn toward God and to look to him to do a new thing. So we didn't read this verse earlier, but Isaiah 43, 15 emphasizes God's role as creator. And the fact that I love is that in Genesis 1, when it says that God creates, the Hebrew, Hebrew word used is bara, which is a word that is only ever used with God. This kind of creating is unique to him because when God creates, he can make something that has literally never been seen or done before. He is not reliant on what already exists. He is limitless in what he can do. And that's where we derive our hope. If we look at our current circumstances and we can't imagine how they could change, if we can't envision what the way forward would look like, that is the perfect blank canvas for God to work on because he specializes in engineering the unimaginable, in creating the completely, utterly new <laughs> And sometimes I struggle to believe in God's promises because I want to be able to construct an image of the future. I want the reassurance of being able to predict the next step that God is going to take. But he doesn't promise us that. When he declares that he is doing a new thing, it doesn't come with a guarantee that he will share the blueprint or the roadmap with us. And the heat just kicked on. So our only option is to walk in trust. But that trust is based on knowledge of who God is, that he has been faithful to his people in every generation, even when they were rebels, and he will be faithful to us. And so lastly, I think there's an invitation here to lean into the discomfort that comes with renewal. 
The deep transformation that God wants to work in us isn't quick and easy. It may require something of us that we don't feel ready to give. We'll be challenged to actually surrender to God's way. We have to opt into the big thing that he's doing that will radically reorient our lives. And we have to let him do it in his way and on his timeline. And it made me think of this quote I had read recently by the author Jennifer Wright. It's on the topic of transformation. She says, people talk about caterpillars becoming butterflies as though they just go into a cocoon, slap on some wings, and are good to go. Caterpillars have to dissolve into a disgusting pile of goo to become butterflies. So if you are a mess wrapped up in blankets right now, keep going. And that is a word for me this week, and maybe it is for someone else here too. I think a lot of us like the idea of metamorphosis in theory, but not so much once we realize how messy the process actually is. It's like God is taking our sin-laden hearts, reducing them down to goo, extracting the idolatry, and reconstructing us into something glorious that reflects his goodness. This is a wild and crazy project that God has going on, but he's so committed to it. All of the promises that we see in Isaiah revolve around our restoration and the restoration of our relationship with God. He is the one who delivers us. He is the one who blots out our sins so that they no longer count against us. They don't have to dictate our future or how we see ourselves anymore. He is the one who sweeps away our offenses like a cloud, our sins like a mist, and says, return to me, for I have redeemed you. Can an idol do this? Can an ideology of our own making bring us home? Can a future that we engineered ourselves promise us renewal? Is there anything else in creation that can compare to the extravagant kindness of God? So this is my invitation to us today as we close. Um, the worship team will lead us soon in a time of response, and you can use this time to praise God through song, to lift up your prayers, Maybe you want to kneel on the carpets in prayer or ask a friend sitting next to you to pray. I'll stay at the front. I would love to pray for you. But as we transition, I'd like to open us with a specific prayer. And that is to ask God, even today, to show you the new thing he is doing in your life, in our church, in our context. So I'll pray for us now. And then I would invite you to just take a minute and to ask God in your own way, to help you see and embrace the new thing that he is inviting you into.